John chapter 11 this morning. This is a a little more of a lengthy passage, but I would like to have you stand as we read it, if you're able to do so. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 45, and we're going to read through chapter 12 and verse 11. So if you'll follow along with me. Beginning with verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, the raising of Lazarus back in the uh, previous uh, verses here, believed in him, believed into him, literally in the Greek. They believed into him. I believe these were people who genuinely were saved. But, and here's a contrast, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's another sign. See, they're always asking for a sign. Jesus gave them a a wonderful sign. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is the Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for, for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. For the nation, interesting. We need to consider what that is. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, or Ephron in the Hebrew, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come, not come to the feast at all? Here's the interesting thing. He's going to die on Passover. He's going to be put to death on Passover. Yes, he'll be there. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those 
reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to uh, help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. We are looking here this morning at the plot to kill Jesus. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. A a marvelous miracle. And this was the this miracle here was the what pushed the Jews over the edge, so to speak, to actively now pursue the death of Jesus. Was God in charge? Absolutely, He ordained it from eternity past. Now He's going to use men, wicked men, to carry out His purpose. We need to look at all life that way. We need to see every detail of life in that light. God has ordained things from eternity past and He is going to carry them out to perfection in this life. And He will use wicked men to accomplish His purpose. And that's what we see here. So Jesus explained to to His disciples that His purpose in going to Lazarus was to glorify the Father. We saw that in verse number 4. Then he remained, uh, or he reminded, excuse me, he reminded Martha that if she believed, she would also see the glory of God. We see that in verse number 40 of chapter 11. 11. Then Jesus did glorify the Father in raising of Lazarus. But the miracle was only part of a larger plan that would now unfold. The text before us. Here, we see Jesus detailing the response to the raising of Lazarus. Some believed on him. That is, the nature of their faith is not explained here, but I kind of think that these were genuine believers. These were those who actually trusted him. They saw this miracle and they said, this is who we we want to put our confidence in. We want to put our faith in. But others were alarmed, and that's the point. And with malicious intent, they reported this to the Pharisees. Now, the reason the Pharisees were the first to be involved was because of their public 
presence in the synagogues, which they then themselves controlled. So they go to the Pharisees. And they said, do you hear about what Jesus did? Raising of Lazarus. And uh, this then caused them to get the, the uh, whole Sanhedrin together. These two entities, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who had great enmity toward one another, are now united in a single and goal, and that is get Jesus out of here. We need to remove Jesus. So Jesus responded to the, to the Sanhedrin's plans to put him to death by leaving Bethany. Uh, and going there to Ephron, or uh, Ephraim as it is in the Greek, which was about 12 miles northeast of Jerusalem in a wilderness area. And this closing section of John 11 also then brings the section that uh, continues into John 12 and describes the events leading then to his death on the cross. We're not going to cover all of them, but we are going to... Uh, Look at here two tremendous contrasts. John is constantly contrasting things. And this is, uh, uh, I think, important for us to understand his gospel. So the time of this section is the third Passover. The first Passover was seen back in chapter 2, verse 13 and following. The second Passover is mentioned in chapter 6 and verse 4. Now this is the third and the final Passover and Jesus will be crucified on that Passover. The commotion then that's associated with this feast then was similar to that of the Feast of the Tabernacles back in the 7th chapter there, which was about six months earlier. Chapter 7, verse 11. There's a commotion that, that takes place, but they don't do anything there. But now this commotion is going to actually fall out into a plan uh, to take Jesus and to have him crucified. There is uh, no miracle or their sign then in this in this last section, and nor is there a sustained discourse. There is, however, three narrative sections that are found. The first two detail the persons honoring Jesus, while the third announces the hour of his glorification. We'll get into those in a later message. Jesus, while the third announces the, in that third discourse, announces the hour of his glorification. And that, see, that ties back to Jesus said to Martha that he came to be glorified. The glorification really had, had, uh, had not so much to do with the raising of Lazarus as it will in his own death and resurrection. So this last narrative ends in with a lengthy discussion of why the Jews did not believe in Jesus. In a dramatic contrast, and here's what, this is what I want to emphasize here, we have the Jews plot to destroy Jesus, but then John inserts here the anointing of Jesus by Mary, six days before the Passover, which is interesting. Ron mentioned the number seven. The number six is the number of man. And here we have a woman who is going to honor Jesus in a, in a special way six days before the, uh, the Passover. And 
Jesus had returned then from uh, to Bethany from Ephraim, and and already the wanted posters were prepared and released. Anyone who knew the whereabouts of Jesus should inform the authorities that he, they might arrest him. And in face of this, we read that they prepared a supper for him. Uh, it, they are as unidentified, but it's presumably the family of Lazarus since Martha was doing the serving. And here we see again, here the, these two women are so drastically different. Martha's a doer. She's serving. She's, she's still a believer. She loves the Lord. But Mary is a worshiper. She, is a, she wants to sit at Jesus' feet. She wants to hear His word. She's got an altogether different temperament than Martha. And that sometimes clashes. That's what happens sometimes in churches too. We have people of different temperaments. And, and uh, they become critical of each other because of, of that uh, temperance difference. God has all kinds of people. And He uses them and blesses them in whatever capacity uh, He has uh, ordered them. Sometimes our, our temperaments get in the way. And that's, that's sad. Uh, sometimes a certain, the doer uh, be, wants to get glory for the doing. And sometimes the server, uh, those who uh, just want to, to uh, worship and, and uh, they're more passive, uh, tend to be lazy and fail. But uh, this, this distinguishes between these two, two ladies. And so they have this uh, family feast in the, at the home of Lazarus, uh, a prepared supper there in his honor, in Jesus' honor, and it was held at the home of Simon the leper. We know this from Matthew chapter six, 26, verse 13. Simon the leper. Some have suggested that Simon the leper was, uh, may have been the father of Lazarus and his sisters, but... Uh, there's no evidence to prove that. But Martha served and Lazarus attended. Mary worshipped. As Jesus taught the woman at the well of Sychar Samaria back in the fourth chapter, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's John 4.24. True worship is a work of grace by the Spirit of God and is truly illustrated here in Mary's act of devotion. John puts this incident here to contrast it with the plot of the Jews to kill Jesus. However, this true act of worship also became the source that God used to provoke Judas to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities. So, Satan's working, God's working. In the same things, at but to different ends. So we let's consider the first here, and that's the decision of the Sanhedrin, which is back in chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. And we need a little bit of background here on the Sanhedrin and its members. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council. Seventy, seventy men. That was started back even during the day, days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, the, the 70. The Sanhedrin was dominated by the chief priests, 
who were temple-oriented. So the Sanhedrin met in Jerusalem where the temple was. All the priests were Sadducees. That's the interesting thing. The ruling, the, the, the Levi, the family of Levi, by this time were, were Sadducees. Strictly Sadducees. And they kept themselves aloof from others. They developed a sense of, of pride and uh, of, of uh, significance. They, like many uh, in the ruling class, even here in the United States, uh, rather than being representatives of the people, they become superior to the people. <laughs> they get this idea that they, somehow they are more important than everybody else because they're in that ruling class. Well, that, that's what the, the Sadducees were. And they were also more willing to compromise. They were very liberal in their views. In fact, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. So I don't know how they understood the raising of Lazarus, but they did not believe. They believed that once you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. <laughs> There's no resurrection. So the Pharisees, on the other hand, by, and by the way, they, the Sadducees were more likely to be the compromising with Rome. In fact, that's what worried them. They, they, they were very worried that Jesus' popularity would lead the Romans to uh, resist them and then they would lose their positions of power. And they didn't want one. They did not want that. We'll see that here. On the other hand, the Pharisees were the minority party. They consisted of the scribes and the teachers and were and they were the synagogue leaders. The synagogue was developed in the uh, uh, dispersion when God took the children of Israel and put them into Babylon and scattered them then among the nations, uh, they, they had no temples, so they started meeting together in the synagogue. And synagogue leaders were, genu were generally uh, Pharisees, which is kind of interesting because Jesus patterned the church on the synagogue, the gathering. The assembly. Forsake not the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Because it, church is an is assembly. It's not a building. Uh, church is not a building. People get this mistaken impression that the church is a building. It's not a building. It's the coming together of the people of God. And generally we meet in a building because it's convenient for us to do so. But so they're synagogue oriented and they have... And that gives them the most contact with the people. While the people went to the temple, they weren't allowed into the actual temple itself, so they, they were there were areas outside the temple where they could assemble. But in the synagogue they could come together and they could talk to each other and so forth, just like in a church. So uh, the Pharisees had the most uh, had the most interaction with the ordinary regular people. And interestingly, they were the more resistant to the Romans. They wanted to keep Israel as a pure entity, a nation separated unto itself. Now the problem here that Jesus presents then to the authorities themselves, why now are they coming together and agreeing to get rid of Jesus? The raising of Lazarus provoked these two parties to do this. And they 
they ask the question, what are we to do? There in verse number 47. They could not deny that Jesus had performed many notable miracles. They expressed that in verses 47 and 48. And they had demanded signs. If you're really the Messiah, show us a sign. And Jesus showed them many signs. Many, many signs. All the miracles of Jesus were, are, were the signs that uh, Jesus performed to demonstrate to all around him that he was the Messiah sent from God. But the signs weren't the important things. It's what he said that was important. His word was what they needed to hear. They weren't willing to listen to his words. So they were blind to the significance of his words and therefore they really disregarded the importance of his signs. And also the fact that Jesus was not easy on them. He came at them with sharp Words exposing and rebuking their hypocritical ways. And he was, he was not kind to them at all. We, oh, we've got to love everybody. Jesus loved, but I tell you what, he was not easy on the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He called them out. He told the truth. And they hated him for it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, feared Jesus would fan the fire of popular messianic hope. That's what happened there at the uh, uh, Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, that was, a, uh, was one feast in the year where people's uh, messianic anticipations were increased. And Jesus stepped up and said, I am the light of the world. I'm that Messiah you're looking for. Now when we come to this feast, they, again, when the Jews are coming together from all over the country and coming into Jerusalem, one of the things that is characteristic of them is their messianic hope, their anticipation that, that Messiah will come. And the, and the Sadducees were afraid of that. So they... They were, they were worried that, that that would provoke the Romans to take away their place, that is the temple. And the nation, that is their quasi-autonomy as uh, important rulers in this nation. And actually they were less concerned about the welfare of the nation as their own political power and, their, and the prestige which that brought. See, so the question of, of verse 47 was more political than spiritual. What are we to do? What are we to do? That brings us to the prophecy of Caiaphas. He was high priest that year. Let me give you a little detail on Caiaphas. Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas was his actual name. He was a Sadducee and was appointed that, to that position by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus. The Romans were fully in charge of who was ruling in Jerusalem. The high priest was, you know, technically the, the leader 
the political leader of the nation was the high priest. He was the president or the, the uh, uh, whatever you might refer to him as. But he was, uh, was made high priest in A.D. 18. His father-in-law, Annas, was the former high priest. He ruled from A.D. 6 to 15 and uh, was, still had powerful influence. What, what, when Annas said something, people listened. His father-in-law, uh, as a, uh, that was Caiaphas' father-in-law, Caiaphas himself served 18 years, a remarkable feat in light of the tenuous nature of the job, balancing the religious function of his office and keeping the Romans happy. Can you imagine trying to do that? Yeah, didn't was not a very uh, successful. And uh, he, both he and Pontius Pilate were deposed in A.D. 36, that, which is to me is an interesting thing. They both... Resist, they both compromise and, and uh, what they knew to be. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. But he also knew that if he let him, let him go, the Romans would be upset and that would upset the, I mean, the Jews would be upset and that would upset the Romans and then he'd be in trouble. And it didn't matter. His compromise cost him. Folks, let me tell you something. Listen to me. Compromise always costs you. It never benefits you. You compromise, it will cost you. As it did both Caiaphas and uh, Pilate. So Caiaphas was a very arrogant man. We see that in the text. He was very critical. And uh, and that scene here in when he, he responds to the question, what are we to do? He responded, you know nothing at all. I mean, you know, you read that and you're, you, you, th- I, you need to think about it. See, this is, and in the Greek it's really clear. This is a very prideful, arrogant response of a man who is full of himself. You know nothing at all. So to the, to the casual reader, it may not seem so arrogant, but and I have the support of the Jewish historian Josephus, who confirms that the Sadducees were openly critical even of members of their own party. They were constantly at one another's throat. Pride. This is the issue of pride. Proud. God called them. Isn't that amazing? God called the Levites. To serve him. He didn't give them any property. You know any land of their own. They were to be mingled among. The rest of the people of Israel. They had their own cities. But they, but uh, their purpose was to serve. The people. To teach them the law. To guide them. In spiritual truth. To act as examples. Of what a godly. People ought to be. But what did the Pharisees become? I mean, the Sadducees become? Arrogant, hypocritical people looking out only for their own interests. And that shows, shows up here in Caiaphas. 
And as Josephus, as I as I already said here, Josephus testifies to. He was also very opinionated. I know what to do. I know exactly what we what we need to do. I don't need to consult you, and I don't need your uh, uh, input on this matter. We either get rid of Jesus, or we're going down. Kind of. That's what he was saying. You you. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 50. What was he saying? He says, Jesus has to go or we're in trouble. That's my ruling on the matter. That's it. It's, his opinion was clearly self-serving. What was best for the ruling party and doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> That's how the uh, we we've got to get rid of this, and we got to get rid of that. We got to put get this guy out of play, out of here, or that guy out of there, because if they if we don't, they're going to mess up our situation here. And what resulted here? This is what's really to me interesting. What resulted from their getting Jesus crucified? The nation perished anyway. Jesus lamented over this city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now your Messiah is going away. And, you're, and you'll not see him again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Yep. Justice was sacrificed for political expediency. John explains that there was a, another meaning behind his words. And this is what's interesting. Because he was the high priest, God used his words to prophesy. He didn't know he was a prophet, but he, he was a prophet. God caused his words to be prophetic. And so John tells us, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, here's this is important. Was it the nation of Israel he died for? No. See? And this is what we need to understand. It was not the nation of Israel. And man, he expands on that when he says, not for, not for the nation only. And here are a, here were Jewish people. Obviously, they're Jewish people that are believing on Jesus, and they're the first to believe on Jesus. But then John adds, "But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad." And Jesus had mentioned that way back in uh, the tenth chapter, when he said that uh, he was gathering his sheep, not thi not this only, that's this flock only, but also he must gather. Even the Gentiles into his flock, that there may be one flock from other nations. So, the nation here. What is the nation? Well, it's the kingdom of God, it's the church, it's the church of the living God, the kingdom of God. So, his language here is filled with sacrificial terminology. And Caiaphas used words 
that were later applied to the church. Nation, ethnos. See, the word ethnos is translated here, nation. Not only this ethnos and people, Laos. Laos, which are people. And uh, so we read there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, ethnos, a royal priesthood, a holy ethnos, a people, Laos, of, for his own possession. So in other words, God was speaking through Caiaphas, but the two were not speaking the same message. And three facts are proposed. One, Jesus, a substitute, would die for the nation, the church. The Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Second, his death would be the means of gathering these people of God into the one flock. There, John chapter 10, verse 16, anticipating the Gentile mission. And thirdly, the death of Jesus makes people the children of God. It's his death that made them the children of God. The gospel brings them into faith and oneness. That takes us to the other contrast now. So this is con these, the selfishness of the Sanhedrin is now contrasted with the selflessness of Mary. And it's interesting here that he puts, uh, puts it in here right where it is. And I'll explain here in a second. A little more background. And we need to compare some... Uh, Three passages, Matthew 26, it's found in Matthew 26, and it's found in Mark 14, and it's also there's also a uh, reference to an anointing in Luke chapter 7. Matthew and Mark have the anointing uh, at Bethany here in the house of Simon the leper. And as I mentioned before, that uh, uh, some have suggested that this Simon was the father I don't, I don't think there's any evidence for that. But uh, uh, in the account here of uh, this, the, the, in their account, Matthew and Luke, a woman anoints Jesus' head with nard from an alabaster jar. Now John has her anointing the feet. The disciples were indignant. The disciples were indignant when they saw this lavish waste. And, but Jesus defended the woman and focused on his coming burial with them. There's a, but in Luke chapter 7, there is a, there's a similar scene recorded there in the house, in also a supper in the house of a Pharisee. And this is uh, where this uh, anointing also took place. However, the woman in Luke's account was of immoral character. In fact, that's uh, the Pharisee said when he saw this woman weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her hair and anointing them, he said, if, this, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he would know what character this woman was and wouldn't touch her or allow her to touch him. And Jesus turns to him and he said to him, uh, when I came into your house, see, he invited Jesus to dine in his house. He said, when I came into your house, uh, you uh, offered me no water to wash my feet. 
You, are, you did not anoint my head with oil. You did not kiss me. But this woman, ever since I came in, has not ceased to wash my feet and to anoint me and to kiss my feet. You know, showing the contrast between the two. So let me ask you a question about sins forgiven. If Who's going to be the most thankful for their sins forgiven? The one who sins most or the one who sins least? And the Pharisee said, well, I would surmise the one who sins most. Or understands their sins. See, that was the problem with the Pharisee. I, I've often wondered, why, how did that Pharisee know that this woman was an immoral character? <laughs> but uh, Jesus explained the reason she's doing this is because her sins, which were many, are now forgiven. And she's loving me much and expressing through her tears the gratitude for her forgiveness. But on the other hand, John's account clearly differs from Luke's. But uh, because Mary was not immoral. She was not an immoral person at all. And it, and it agrees with Matthew and Luke's account. And there, but there are three little minor discrepancies here. Number one, John does not say that the dinner was he- where the dinner was held only that Martha served. Matthew and specifically uh, points to the indignation coming from the disciples, whereas John names only Judas Iscariot, and for a particular reason. Mark and Ma- and uh, uh, Matthew and Mark place the meal after the triumphal entry. It's not a problem of of uh, you know. There's not a mistake here. Uh, Luke's very careful six days before the Passover is when the, when the meal took place. But he inserts it here because he's, he's presenting this contrast. He, he deals with the triumphal entry later, but, but he's, not, he's not so much interested in the chronology, chronology here of the passage as he is the subject of the uh, passages. So Mark then speaks of the woman's anointing Jesus' head. John has her anointing the feet. And there, here again, there's no discrepancy because he did both. Just John doesn't mention the, the head. These are minor issues and they are easily resolved. The, what the passage does, it brings us a couple of questions. Why would anyone wipe off perfume just applied? Isn't that what you put it on for so you can smell it? <laughs> So why would you wipe it off? I, that's a, always a big question with me. And then why would any respectable woman such as Mary let down her hair in male company? This was a no-no. A couple of details also require notice. First of all, the quantity of the nard. It was too much to pour on someone's head. That's why I believe Mark just... And focuses on that one thing, but Luke, uh, but uh, John has his anointing her feet, his feet as well. Second of all, Jesus responded to the perfume that was poured on his body as in view of his burial. 
And thirdly, Mark and Matthew wanted to focus on Jesus' head to show that he was honored, where I think Mary's, John's emphasis was Mary's humility, focusing on the mission and and indicating her sacrifice in light of that. So let's look at the anointing itself. First of all, this Mary, this supper in the village honoring a celebrated guest. John informs us that the event was held six days before the Passover, making it on a Saturday evening. Now, that they weren't violating the Sabbath. Why? Some people say, well, that would be violating the Sabbath. It was held on Saturday evening. No, it wasn't, because the Sabbath went from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Six o'clock Friday, roughly six o'clock Friday to roughly six o'clock Saturday. So what happened after six o'clock on Saturday was no longer violating the Sabbath. One theory uh, raised... Uh, I've already mentioned that. I'll skip that. Uh, this, the the nard, the perfume nard. What was nard? Nard was an oil extracted from the root and the spike of a pl- of the nard plant from India. It came from India. It's called spike nard because it came comes from the spike, the the root and the spike of the nard plant. John modified the description by. The adjective meaning genuine or pure nard. The quantity used was approximately 11 ounces in in a bottle of alabaster. Nard was very expensive. The amount of nard that she poured on Jesus was roughly a year's wages of the average man. Think about that. What Mary's act was an act of worship. And it was at least an utmost humiliating self-sacrifice of love and devotion. She let down her hair. That that she let down her hair further argues that Mary did not care what others thought. Her sacrifice of love and true worship was extravagant as the perfume that she poured out. Now she's doing it out of love and worship for Jesus, but God was going to use it in another way as well. And here again we see contrast. Hers was a loving self-sacrifice. But there is people observing. And as we pointed out, Matthew and Luke, or Mark, excuse me, Matthew and Mark uh Focus upon the fact that the disciples reacted to it. John only singles out one, and that is Judas, the reaction of Judas. And there in Matthew it says, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Judas' objection was hypocritical. He feigned concern for the poor. But his indignation was reflected in his own greed, lust, and materialism. Judas was the treasurer of the apostolic band. He carried the money bag. He was a thief, helping himself to its contents in a way that would divert suspicion. And although this was the only place where Judas is called a thief, the charge 
is supported by the fact that his greed made him willing to sell Jesus to the Jews for 30 pieces of silver. So now we have the rebuke of Jesus in defense of Mary. The, the Greek there of chapter or verse number 7, chapter 12, verse number 7, is very difficult. It says, Leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So the question to ask is, what did, he, what did she keep? She poured it out. It's certainly not the perfume. If she has already poured out most of it, how does she keep it? And it is more likely that Jesus was revealing the fact that, like Caiaphas, Mary did not understand the act that she was triggering. What she did prefigured what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would do in the near future as they buried Jesus. The Lord's statement then that the poor are always present with us is not to be taken as lack of concern for them either. But only that he was to be the primary interest in that, at that point. Believers' faithful obedience to the Lord would benefit the poor more than Mary's offering, if sold, would help the poor. Further, it was Jesus' rebuke of Judas that pushed him to seek out the Jews so that he might betray him to them. So I have just some quick lessons here for you. Number one, the glory of God was not so much seen in the raising of Lazarus, but in the event that brought about the death and resurrection of Jesus, which was clearly John's message. So in chapter 12, verse 23, we read, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So observe the awesome greatness of God in bringing about His purpose. How God worked it out. I mean, it just the intricate little details here. God's at work in all of those details, bringing all of this about. And the people that are involved don't really understand what's going on, but God does. And He's moving each chess piece in exactly the precision to bring about His perfect will. So are you a Christian? And if so... Who are you more like? Are you more like Caiaphas? Self-serving? Or are you like Mary? Self-sacrificing? Sadly, as still in this body of sin, we, we have a tendency to be self-serving. We need to ask God for grace to overcome that we may be more self-sacrificing. Mary's devotion should not be seen as making her faith superior to that of Martha's. Martha loved the Lord in her way. Mary's loving the Lord in her way. John focuses on her act only as it focuses on the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins on the cross, pointing to His burial. Mary's devotion is nonetheless something that all of us should desire to emulate how she worshipped and honored her Savior. 
how she gave her all, how she cared nothing for what others might see, how others might see her. Jesus was her Savior and Lord. That's all she cared for. Thirdly, the poor are always with us. But that also means that we have a responsibility to help them. Jesus was hypo- excuse me, Judas was hypocritical in his concern. But the substance of his concern was accurate. We are to give relief to the poor. Fourthly, beware of your response when rebuked. Judas's reaction to Christ's rebuke led him to betray Christ. He was angry. And he, I'm going to get back at him. But boy, the day came when he regretted it too. And he took the money back and threw it at the, at the Jews' feet. He said, I betrayed innocent blood. And then went out and hanged himself. So let us pray for grace to humble ourselves and offer and accept the truth of our condition and seek His power to change for the better when He rebukes us. Father, thank You for this really powerful passage. God, I ask that Your Word would work in our hearts the truths that that we've laid out, that we may be like Mary, loving, sacrificial, worshiping You, giving our all for You. Not like Caiaphas who is only interested in self-preservation and keeping his office and making the Romans happy. Father, we just, we, we need revival in our day. Oh God, how I pray. Revive us again that Your people may rejoice in You and bring about, Lord, an awakening in our nation. And I pray, God, that even in the events of, of, of our day and the, the war that's going on there in the Ukraine will be a means whereby You open the hearts of people to Yourself and bring about true worship and true revival. And we'll praise You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.